0: Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, our internet-only section of the show. If any radio station out there wants to give us three hours, though, we will happily send you the MP3. Not going to pay for it, though. You got to give it to us for free.
1: I mean, we're offering up quality content here. Quality content. Um. You know, you listen to the talk radio around here, so, I mean, you have a better our, sense of the quality comparison. Uh, the
0: quality of our program for is at least as good as theater, you know, as a as an entertainment product. It is at least as good as anything else that these conservative millionaire-funded right-wing ho- hosts put out at least i i posit it's better but it is at least on an entertainment value as good and we do this not as our jobs so that's true give us uh, give us lots of money big unions with big packs that spend hundreds of millions of dollars look look okay here's what here's here's my offer to you um Union spent $120 million on Obama during, like, or, or on Hillary Clinton during 2016. Uh, give us a fraction of a, a fraction. $200,000. <laughs> $200, give us $200,000, and we will have the best labor media program five days a week in the country. That's our, that's our offer. Standing off or anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh We've got some good stuff, though. Uh, we're going to be breaking down Max's debate on the hills rising, and then we're going to be talking to Stephen Greenhouse, former labor reporter for the In New York Times. Still a labor reporter. But let's get started with Max's debate on rising, because uh, that's, that's a lot of fun, and <clears throat> I enjoyed it. So friend of the show, Maximilian Alvarez, was on the hills rising last week. In what, uh, from what I can gather and And uh Max is in the chat, um, just waiting to be complimented so if <laughs> if you have a <clears throat> if you 've got a correction, then feel free to offer it. But from what I can gather, this was just supposed to be a conversation about the the pros and cons of california 's new health care plan and rebates to Californians. It did not seem like from Max's reaction that this was supposed to be about undocumented immigrants, but it tur- that's what it turned into. Um, and the conservative Newsweek contributor that Max was on the panel with opened first when asked about, like, do you support these things from California, saying, uh, I'd have to look into it <clears throat> when asked if she would support it, which, like, <laughs> did she not know that she was going to be... a talking about that you know like usually on these shows you get a sort of a sort of you know like okay this is what you're going to be talking about and so the first thing out of her mouth was like i'll have to look into it and that was just very odd to me um but she did that before immediately pointing the finger at undocumented immigrants so let's take a listen to What she opened with,
2: you know, I'm not opposed to states using their excess funds to actually support and undergird the citizens, considering uh, in general and considering the times uh, we are in right now. I'm curious about the extent to which these funds will be provided to uh, undocumented migrants and illegal aliens and the uh, impact that that could have on uh, citizens and taxpayers overall.
0: Uh just can we acknowledge for a second like the weird psychology that you've got to have for the first thing that you think of when you hear folks in California are going to get some relief from inflation literally the first thing on your mind is I hope them damn illegals don't get it Yeah I, I mean uh, th- that's just that that is a weird psychology right That's a weird thing to think
1: it's very American
0: so Max points this out, saying, you know, that if we want to be concerned about freeloading, despite all of the evidence that we've got that undocumented undocumented folks do contribute to society, that they do pay taxes, um, they build our infrastructure, they provide, uh, you know, they they do necessary labor on farms, all of these things, you know, despite all the evidence that we've got that they do contribute to society. Uh, that even if we stipulate that they don't like on a net they are a drain like even let's just stipulate that there're better way there are better places to look if we want to you know stop some holes you know in the in in, in the bathtub so to speak let's listen to what he re- how he responded
3: two things that i would say one uh I don't know how this quickly became a conversation about, um, you know, illegal immigration. All I would say is that, you know, what I think defines, you know, like me more as a leftist is that I am always looking to punch up, not punch down. Punching down at illegal immigrants, undocumented folks is a tried and tested method to get working people to see one another as the enemy instead of looking at the very obvious bandits who are ripping us off. Whatever. You know, you are saying like whatever uh, freeloading um, the right says is happening on account of undocumented migrants pales in comparison to the the amount of money that corporations and the wealthy get to steal from the public coffers and stash in their pockets. It's not even close. So unless we're talking about that, the whole like, you know, oh, is this going to go to undocumented folks is an absolute BS point. Also, undocumented folks pay taxes. So let's shut up about that crap. (laughs)
0: Now, <laughs> I love it. Love it. Bloody now, day, Max. in the interest of fairness, though, the Newsweek contributor had a pretty compelling rebuttal. Let's play that.
3: Let's keep our eye on the ball. Secondly, no, we I won't, won't say, <laughs> well, you're wrong. You're making a dumb, bad argument. That's what I would say to any working person who's
0: watching here. I think, you're, I watching, think you're, you're hysterical and you're, you like you're left for the up. left. So, like I said, pretty compelling, uh, calling him hysterical and <laughs>
1: that's not that's not an adjective i would ever use on max um you know listen to a lot of max's stuff and read his stuff hysterical is not a word i would ever come up with no it's
0: not very just very a very strange rebuttal uh she does go on to say that though basically you know like look even if rich folks are taking more Undocumented people don't deserve anything. Like, just by the fact that they're undocumented, they shouldn't be getting anything from us, even if rich people take
1: more, which she doesn't even dispute. And um, as if, you know, citizenship status, a piece of paper with a country's flag on it mm-hmm. determines your value as a human being.
0: And as if all of this stuff is immutable and natural, like that's just the way that it is. We choose... To make these people undocumented, we could easily give them the documents and give them the rights so that they are not as easily exploited. Uh, But she doesn't want to do that. She wants to demonize them. Uh, So this is how Max responds to her saying that, look, even if rich folks are taking more, undocumented people don't deserve anything. And uh, we should take everything from them. This is how he responds.
4: Max, what do you say to this argument? Because I've heard some leftists talk about this. There are debates about the extent to which immigration, undocumented or otherwise, has a negative effect on the American worker, but most, the most Credible argument to that end is that there is a at the very bottom tier of the American workforce people who are very marginal Marginal and represents a very small fraction of American workers. There is a, a somewhat of a, a negative effect caused by undocumented immigrants Do you think as a left party uh, a working-class movement you have to at least acknowledge and and have a conversation about that even if your response to that reality wouldn't be to have draconian immigration policy it might be i don't know a, a different kind of distributive policy i mean do you think that the left does itself a disservice by not acknowledging that reality or at least that perception
3: yeah i mean like you know for any issue if we are pretending it doesn't exist uh we are not being you know honest and and trying to actually come to solutions. Here's what I would say to everyone listening. Don't listen to me, don't listen to anyone on this panel. As I've been saying since I started my podcast years ago, listen to the workers. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of them. You can go hear their thoughts on this on my podcast on the real news in my book, right? You know like and what work the thing I would say is it's actually not that hard. Working people are smart. They're not dumb. They know how the bosses pit working people against one another either by union workers against non-unionized workers, citizens against non-citizens, black workers against white workers. Right. They have been dividing and conquering us for as long as this country has existed. And even before that. And here's the hopeful thing is that if you have the honest conversation that we're talking about having here, which it is wrong to presume that people aren't having that labor has been having this conversation for a long time. Mm -hmm. And if you actually look at unions like Labor's Local 79 in New York, they are showing the path forward. They are unionized citizen workers who are currently standing up for undocumented workers who are being exploited and taken advantage of by union busting contractors in the city. They are going to bat for them. They even created a fund to make sure that undocumented workers could recoup, you know, benefits that the rest of us were able to during the pandemic. Um, but undocumented workers were not because they know. When, you know, the business class and, you know, right wing and liberal politicians who champion them target immigration as the issue, uh, hurting workers and suppressing wages. Working people know that what that means is that they do not want to stop illegal immigration. They want to enshrine a permanent class, a permanent underclass of undocumented workers that they can constantly exploit. If you look at the data, if you look at the research, that is what happens even under Trump's regime. They did not like really push out uh, the 10 million plus undocumented workers who are already here. They just made it harder for those workers to speak up on the job. They made it easier for bosses to exploit them and they made it easier for companies and businesses to undercut other workers by relying on undocumented workers. So there is a left argument to this. It's being had look to the workers, look to organized labor. They're providing the path forward. It is not our job to punch down and blame the 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 ways the ruling class is ripping all of us off on undocumented workers who are just trying to get by like the rest of us i will uh, not i have no patience they for that. Be we
0: here. Cannot let- here max really goes methodically through the arguments that conservative pundits have against solidarity with undocumented immigrants can the presence of undocumented workers harm documented workers like of course it can the effect is marginal from it. any any kind of research that's been done into this it shows that the effect is generally pretty marginal and but there are better ways to rectify that namely by giving them rights and helping them to organize He also points out that labor has been in this conversation for a long time. And labor has actually moved pretty significantly a 100 years ago. It was very anti-immigrant. Through struggle, through um, conversations with other undocumented workers, debates in union halls, labor has come to the position that doing the boss's job, attacking other working people, Is not good for us. It's not a good use of our energy. The best use of our energy is building solidarity, building communion, building community to be able to fight the boss. That's what labor has. This is the position that labor has come to basically globally across the world. This is the position of organized labor as opposed to a reactionary anti-immigrant position. Because we've seen the reality of how it affects working people. He also points out how actually having undocumented immigrants is beneficial for bosses like Trump, which is why folks like that will stoke division and resentment without actually offering any solution, without actually without actually moving forward or or, or moving forward very little on any sort of solution, because we still have undocumented immigrants in this country they still have and they have even less rights than they did before because of the Trump administration and Biden and the Biden administration's continuation of Trump era policies and that lack of rights makes them more easily exploitable because when you have when 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 your boss instead of it's already incredibly difficult to organize right it's already incredibly difficult to organize, even as just a normal worker, you know, as just somebody who who the worst that can happen to you is you get fired. That's a really big that's a really big deal. Now, what if the worst that can happen to you is you get deported, potentially from the only country that you've ever known to a country where you don't speak the language?
1: Right. And perhaps your entire family as well. You
0: get torn away from your family. That is a much bigger. That's a much bigger consequence. And so having these uh, these rights denied undocumented denied to undocumented people is bad for them, obviously, but it's bad for us because they're more easily exploitable. And it is easier to make them work for next to nothing. It's easier to make them work for no health care, for no benefits, for no retirement, for no workplace protections. And when that happens, when we have lots of workplaces with these terrible working conditions that does to a certain extent bring the standard down for everybody but the answer to that is not to attack these people the answer to that is to give these people rights and organize with them to make everybody's life better that's obviously the answer uh this was her closing argument though Uh, and let's just see if she addresses anything that max said uh,
2: when you come to the United States of America illegally, you are recognizing that what you are getting as a result of being here outweighs the costs of your being here. That's part of the reason you're here. So you can pay remittances back to your home country and all of those types of things. I would say there are plenty of Americans who would like to work, look at the study from California about black men who lost their job during COVID Southern California and didn't have another job, even though they were looking. There are 50 some odd million Americans who are wanting to have a job, but cannot. There are ways that ethnic unions, right, uh, led by immigrants, do not hire Black Americans. For example, I don't know about other Americans, probably so, but the reality is you should not be here in the first place. And by being here, you purchase, you do those things where you get taxed. That's the cost of being here without permission and consent illegally.
0: Four very different opinions on uh, this issue. That was a very weird comment about ethnic unions.
1: Yeah. That was very strange. uh, I mean, I think she's one of those people who, you know, stirs up racial and ethnic division uh, as a tactic. Uh, You know, and this this whole discussion reminds me, I just want to plug a previous guest that we had on the show, Brendan O'Connor. He wrote a book called "Blood Red Lines: How Nativism Fuels the Right." Um, it's been on my to-read list <laughs> since he's been on the show, uh, but really want to just shout that out. Uh, if you missed it, it's been you know a little over a year, I believe, since we had Brendan on the show. But he really dives into how this nativist thinking has been a, a huge source of power and influence for the contemporary right, and it's really disappointing that uh, you know it's 2022 we're still dealing with this because at the end of the day we're, we're talking about our fellow human beings here and at no point um, really in these conversations do we ever address the elephant in the room which is why are people so desperate to risk their lives and limbs, the safety of their families why are they so desperate to come here and, and, and despite these dangers well You know, maybe if the United States would stop overthrowing people's governments, maybe if the United States would stop with sanctions that is killing tens of thousands of people, maybe if the United States would stop flooding these countries with arms and backing right-wing militias and and, and having violent drug wars disrupting communities, maybe if people's communities weren't being bulldozed by developers – and maybe if people's livelihoods weren't thrown uh, out the window with free trade agreements, maybe, just maybe, there'd be less people eager to come here.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, and it really, I mean, she made no effort to address anything that Max said about, about anything. I mean, that was just, that was really bizarre as a closing statement after what Max said. Um,
1: so yeah, oh, and Max gave a real life example uh, right. of a union, not an ethnic union, <laughs> uh, a multi ethnic union uh, that believes in multi ethnic solidarity. That was super weird. That was a super weird comment,
0: and like the way that she said ethnic. Now I'm getting a bit like psychoanalytical, and and maybe that's not warranted, but the like I sensed like a a bite. To the way that she said ethnic, and and I don't know if that's warranted or not, but that was that was just super weird. That was a weird comment um, about ethnic unions, uh, and 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 in the context of not addressing, and and you know it is worth it is worth mentioning that you know. Um, folks are the, the worry about giving undocumented immigrants rights and, and and you know the ability to live here is that it, it would incentivize other people and unlike to a certain extent we can say that it would, but um, we have open borders within the United States and people who are destitute in you know the black belt, for instance in Alabama don't move to Hawaii you know and Hawaii is kind of like the idyllic, Thing and there's nothing stopping them from moving to Hawaii. Theoretically, except, you know, right? Theoretically, yeah. yeah. And and so why would it be any different for you know people in Guatemala or Honduras uh, wanting to come work in Alabama? You know the the amount of people that are going to want to do that are are not going to be you know it, it's not going to it's not going to be unmanageable. I would no,
1: say. it's not. And I mean, let's just remember that. Uh, border controls tend to be for people, not for capital right um,
0: <laughs> right right capital has open borders uh but but not labor um yeah and that and that 's a that 's a line that I got from uh, uh the the bit about having open borders and nobody going to hawaii um from stephen robbins podcast uh redirect it 's really good about immigration law
1: and Perspectives. So, y'all should check that out. Absolutely. Uh, And we do have Stephen Greenhouse in the Zoom. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's go ahead
0: and bring him on. Uh, Stephen Greenhouse is a labor reporter. He is formerly with the New York Times. He is an author and our next guest. Uh, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Very nice to be here. So, Uh, we got you on to to talk about your recent column for the American Prospect. Um, But first, if if you would indulge us for a second, I'm interested in your time as a labor reporter at the New York Times and before that. How long have, have you been reporting on labor?
5: So I started writing, I was at the New York Times for 31 years. I began there in 1983. I became the labor reporter in 1995. And, um, I was the labor reporter for 19 years there, which was a long time. And for a while, I was the last standing, last remaining, full-time labor reporter of the Daily Newspaper of the United States. Uh, I felt very privileged. I felt a huge responsibility to try to tell the world what was happening to America's workers how, in many ways, they were being exploited. Um, and I felt like a dinosaur in ways. And I must say, I'm, I'm very glad that, There's been a resurgence in labor reporting over the past uh, five, ten years, uh, partly because all these labor reporters have to cover this surge, uh, resurgence among labor unions and strikes and organizing. And, you know, as a labor reporter for The New York Times, I wrote about, uh, I remember I once went down to Birmingham to write about the steel industry unions, the United Steelworkers. I went down to um, Mississippi to write about the effort to unionize um, Nissan Workers in, in Canton, I wrote, I went to uh, Camden, South Carolina, to write about a, uh, a successful union-busting effort at a battery plant down there. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of reporting in the South about unions and workers and how workers are treated. I mean, you know, I've written about, um, you know, subway strikes here in New York City, where I am, efforts to unionize farm workers in, um, in California. I wrote about growing income inequality and how that's hurting American workers, I wrote about horrible set-up conditions in Bangladesh and Honduras. So, you know, I, I wrote a lot about labor. And and people, you know, when I was first telling friends I wanted to write about labor, they'd say, oh, that's a boring beat, it's not a sexy beat. And I said, what do you mean? You know, there are 130 and now 150 million workers in the United States. There are so many important stories to write about workers, You know, uh, you know, about, you know, they're great-paying jobs where workers make a good income, and it's important to hold them out as models. There are examples where workers are horribly exploited. They work in unsafe conditions. Um, there are examples I read about Walmart ripping off workers, making uh, workers work off off the clock. So I, I found you know, a ton of very good stories to write about workers, to write about unions, and and you know I, I retired from the New York Times in in um, two thousand fourteen, this and and that was before the very exciting time we're seeing right now where uh, I submit this, is the most exciting time for workers, uh, most inspiring time for workers and unions in probably 50, 60, 70 years with what's going on at Starbucks and Amazon and Apple. And now efforts to unionize Trader Joe's and some Google stores and, you know, and the strikes we saw at Kellogg and John Deere. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a surprising amount of a huge amount of interest in unions among young people. And that's a real change compared with 10 and 20, 30 years ago. I think a lot of young people feel the economy is broken, feel the economy isn't doing enough for them. They're they're frustrated when they hear that they will be the first generation in American history to do worse than their parents. And they say that's not fair. We want to fix that. We want our Employers to treat us better. We just went through this horrible pandemic, but we as workers were often treated shabbily. And so, how are we going to improve things for ourselves? You know, we all can't get graduate degrees and go to MIT or go to Stanford or go to Harvard. You know, uh, one way, they, one handy way, one available way to improve things for themselves and their coworkers is to form a union. And I think that's what we've been seeing. Uh, and there's this huge surge of interest in unionization.
0: Yeah, well, the the you know, the juxtaposition between labor in the 90s, early 2000s and today is really interesting because you mentioned labor was labor reporting was much less in vogue, so to speak, back then. You you know, you said you had colleagues say that that's not a sexy beat, which is as somebody who has come up in this era, uh, you know, I'm a union member and, and I do this program like it's People will think it's sexy, you know. Now, and and it seems to me intuitively so because labor reporting, uh, talking about what's happening with workers' lives, how they're fighting back, uh, is really cool and relatable to everybody you know we can't we can't relate to business reporting you know when they're talking about uh, oh what wh- what is the stock market doing or wh- what did they say in this investor meeting you know that's those are those are halls that the that, that ordinary working people are never going to be in and and in, in large part we have no relation to where what are what is this working person going through? Oh, I can relate to that. I I spent years in the service industry, even though I've got an office job now with a union. I spent years in an ununionized restaurant and, I can relate a lot to the things that I hear about from Starbucks or from other restaurant workers. I can relate to some of the things that I hear in in some of the office jobs, like uh, uh, like Apple or um, or Google, that are coming out. You know, not as much because I'm in the federal sector, but you know, there you can relate to it. And and so the idea that 20, 30 years ago people were saying, "Oh, that's not a sexy beat. That's not interesting." It's so bizarre to me but on, on another in another sense the labor movement was much more powerful 20 to 30 years ago we had we had millions more union members we had a higher union density rate so why why is it you think that now with literally millions less millions of union members less a much lower union density than we had in the 90s um is it that is it that there's this resurgence in labor reporting that it's sexy that people understand that it's sexy um, and and you know I, I there, there's a lot that I just that I just threw out but I, I'm interested in, in wh- what what your take on all that is.
5: You, you have you asked a lot of very good questions and I'll try to answer at least some of them and maybe I'll be lucky and get to all of them. Uh, so you know I'm sure as many of your listeners know, I of your viewers know, you know, the 1950s was the peak. Uh, for labor unions in the United States representing more than one in three workers. By the 1980s, it was down to one in five workers, and now we're down to one in 10 workers. And in the private sector, just one in 16 workers. So that shows a real decline in the percentage of workers' labor and a decline in power of unions. And in 1980, much more in the 1990s and 2000s, unions weren't doing much organizing. They weren't going on strike very much. I think a lot of newspaper editors and TV editors said, unions just aren't very exciting. They're, you know, they're just, you know, boring, they're bureaucratic. There'd be an occasional strike like this huge UPS strike in 1997 that was lead story in papers across the United States, the biggest strike in decades. But, you know, I think a lot of others just thought unions were kind of going on a slow fade year after year as their, um, you know, as their membership declined as the percentage of workers in unions declined. Yes, Unions would, you know, score some victories in Washington, you know, you know helping get the Americans with, Dis- with Disability Act passed, helping get the uh, unpaid, you know, Family Medical Leave Act passed. But that only provides unpaid leave, not paid leave. We, the United States, are the only advanced industrial nation in the world which doesn't guarantee all or- workers paid uh, parental and family leave. Not a good thing for the world's wealthiest nation. So uh, I think a lot of worker, a lot of editors thought, you know, there are more interesting beats, more interesting, more interest, more interesting beats than labor beats. So you know, as labor grew weaker, uh, what happened? Uh, we, we saw You know, workers suffered decade after decade of wage stagnation. Income inequality got worse and worse and worse. Now we, have, the United States, has the worst income inequality among the world's major industrial nations. And I think we've reached a point uh, over the past few years where just a lot of workers said, we're fed up, we're not going to take it anymore. And, and so we've seen this burst of labor activity far more than five, than, than five or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And it started with the teacher strikes, first in West Virginia, then in Oklahoma, then in Arizona, you know, bright red states, right? Because they, you know, the teachers felt, we are being pushed around by these state legislatures. They wouldn't give us raises while they're cutting taxes sharply for the rich, for corporations, for fossil fuel companies. And and they said, this isn't fair. So they went on strike. That was really began this surge of workers flexing their muscles and saying, we're not going to take it anymore. Then came the pandemic. And, you know, pandemic was horrible for the whole nation, but I think especially for, frontline workers for essential workers, like, like Starbucks workers. Like you had to report to work every day and, and you risked your life going to work, whether taking the subway or bus, maybe you risk your life facing customers. You risk your life working a few feet from uh, your coworkers, you know, ditto and McDonald's, ditto and meatpacking work, you know, meatpacking plants, ditto if you're a bus driver or a subway conductor. And a lot of workers felt I am sticking my neck out, risking my life day after day after day, and I'm getting a raise of 2% while the CEO is getting a raise of $2 million or $4 million or $6 million and, and while they're working safely from home. And I put my neck on the line on the front line every day. And I think during the pandemic, workers became really angry. And in the background was this increased inequality. And I often think of you know, people you know, watching a you know, basketball game or, or a football game or a sitcom, and, you know, in the background, are the ads like buy a Mercedes Benz, buy a BMW, go on this cruise line trip to Europe. And people are saying, you know, I can hardly you know, buy a beater, I can hardly buy a used car. And like, you know, there's something wrong that I'm working my ass off on a job or two jobs or three jobs. And I can't begin to afford what, what the wealthy can and that our economy is broken. It doesn't afford, give us enough opportunity I think I think with all that backdrop, the income inequality, the decades of wage stagnation, the feeling that Washington is doing very little to make things better for workers, uh, the frustrations among young people, you know, mountains of student debt, huge problems with housing affordability. A lot of a lot of young Americans can't afford to move out from their parents. And they say this stinks. We want to make our lives better. Uh, Also, during the pandemic pandemic. you know many people got sick in many places there was a shortage of workers so the workers who continued working they often had to work many more hours and and you know and their schedules they'd be scheduled to work maybe 12 hour shifts or 6 or 7 days a week and again they felt we went beyond we did far more than was required and and we only got this tiny raise while corporate profits soared and ceo salaries soared and this really is the backdrop for this surge in unionization i feel uh, and that's why we're seeing that at Amazon and at Starbucks and at Apple and 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 a lot of educated workers, adjunct um, professors, grad students, even undergraduate student workers, dining hall workers are trying to unionize, museum workers are unionizing, workers at nonprofits are unionizing, workers at political campaigns are unionizing. And kind of it's people really think have increasingly – concluded that it's important to have a voice at work. And, and you know, my generation, um, I think a lot of people thought, oh, it's not so important to have a voice at work. Uh, if we have a union, great. If we don't have a union, big deal. We're doing okay. And also, you know, the, the middle class has declined in the United States. You know, uh, you know, wages are typical. Factory workers have really gone down a lot, lot, lot after uh, factoring inflation. So, so you know, you know. again, in my generation, I'm 70 years old, I admit, I'm, I'm an oldster. You know, people work at factories in the Midwest, people work in, in many factories in the South, they made a good living. But now, if you go to work at a, at a factory in the Midwest or in the South, you know, the wages after inflation are probably 20, 30, 40, 50% less than they were 30 years ago. So, so workers are saying... We're not getting a fair deal. And the way to get a fair deal, both in wages and to have a fair say, a stronger say at work, to assure more respect and better working conditions is to form a union. And it's contagious. You know, when people saw the Amazon victory in Staten Island, and, and, I, and, and I've written that, you know, if there's any one company in the United States of America where people thought you could never unionize because it's so... Difficult because the company is so huge because the workplace's warehouse of five, six, seven thousand workers is so huge. And, and, and the company is so ferociously, fiercely, vigorously anti unionist, Amazon. And when they succeeded in unionizing the 8,300 employee warehouse in, in Staten Island, people thought, wow, if you could unionize that Everest, that mountain, that monster in Staten Island, well, we could unionize any place in the United States. So I think that really inspired people. Ditto with Starbucks. You know, Amazon, Starbucks, Apple—they are iconic, iconic American corporate names, and people are seeing, hey, you could unionize Amazon. Hey, you could unionize Starbucks. Hey, you could unionize Apple. And this, you know, huge, fast-growing wave of unionization at Starbucks, I think, has also given uh, a lot of inspiration to people. And I keep asking, why hasn't that wave spread? to work as McDonald's and Chipotle and Taco Bell and, and Long John Silver and Burger King and so on and so forth. And, and I think that's a big question. This is, you know, I've written the most promising moment for labor probably since the 1930s or 40s. And why aren't the nation's labor unions really seizing the moment and trying to maximize it? I think too often the big unions are just sitting on their hand, their hands and not doing enough.
0: You mentioned in a, in a different article uh, that um, you know, just uh, th- that it was important. Just kind of for the record, that it may seem like the Amazon labor union campaign has kind of slowed down in comparison to the Starbucks workers. Uh, uh, United campaign, which you see new petitions and new election wins every single day, where you saw this one win from the Amazon Labor Union, and then you saw a loss and you haven't seen much else. But it's important to note that that one election brought more people into the union than all of the Starbucks workers' <laughs> united yeah. campaigns and, and elections have combined to this point. Um, so you know the effort that goes into organizing an Amazon warehouse uh, and and the uh, the importance of that win I think can go understated. And and that was a good that was a good point that you brought up in a different article. And and so you're the title of the article that. Uh, that interested me that I wanted to bring you on to talk about was uh, labor's John L. Lewis moment and, and calling it John L. Lewis moment. You, you're calling back to this period of history in the labor movement in the United States where there was a real focus on organizing and similar to the Starbucks and the Amazon campaigns. It was very bottom up, very worker driven. Um, and John L. Lewis, really tried to ride the wave. Can you talk to us about that history? Sure,
5: sure. So, you know, there are two great John Lewises, the great John Lewis, you know, from from the South, who was the, you know, very courageous civil rights leader. Then there was a famous labor leader, one of, you know, perhaps the nation's most famous labor leader in the 1930s, John L. Lewis, who headed the United Mine Workers. And at the time, the Mine Workers Union was by far the biggest, strongest, richest union in the United States, you know, concentrated in Kentucky and West Virginia and Alabama and Pennsylvania. And so in the 1930s, you know, part, you know, there was the depression going on, but there was also a lot of manufacturing going on. You know, Henry Ford had really developed mass production uh, in the decades before. So in the 1930s, there were more large factories being created, you know, with thousands, you know, thousands of workers together. And many of them felt that wages were lousy. So, uh, you know, traditionally, you know, American unions, they'd be a carpenter's union and a machinery workers' union and a plumber's union, and they'd unionize in craft by craft by craft by craft. So, in the 1930s, there was this movement to like try to unionize these whole big Ford or Chrysler or United States steel uh, factories that had 5,000, 7,000 workers and like, and have all 5,000 workers in one union. You know, not a union for the plumbers, not a union for the carpenters, not a union for the mill rights, the fixing machines. So, you know, John Lewis, the head of the mine workers, said, that's a great idea. We should back these this big one union for all effort, wall-to-wall unionization effort, you know, at the auto plants, at the steel plants, at the machinery plants, at the rubber plants. But the American Federation of Labor said, no, we don't like that. These are not skilled workers. We generally only unionize skilled workers. And we don't we hate this idea of having a wall-to-wall union with all 5,000 people in a GM or Ford plant in a union. So basically, you know, John Lewis said, "You guys are and they were guys then. Let's face it. You know, you folks are <laughs> missing the moment. Uh, you know, if you know, to really have the union movement grow, to keep it strong, you know, we have to back this effort of wall-to-wall unionization in the mass production industries." So the, it was really the mine workers ended up breaking away from the American Federation of Labor and a few other you know, forward-looking progressive unions like the immagric clothing workers, Sidney Hillman, the international lady garment workers, David Dubinsky broke away and formed the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And they really fueled this humongous surge of organizing in, in the mass production industries, especially auto in the late 1930s and during World War II. And the U.S. Um, and, and and you know uh, the United Mine Workers really financed the hiring of 500 organizers uh, to you know for you know in, in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin um, and, and and West Virginia to really unionize you know hundreds of thousands of workers. And, you know I'll, I'll discuss this stuff in a minute, but you know thanks to this effort to organize to unionize mass production workers. You know, it's so successful. The United States went from 12 percent of workers organized in 1936 to like like 32 uh, percent. You know, like two and a half times more organized. You know, millions, millions more organized by by 1946, the year after the war ended, and and that shows that you know uh, John Lewis really said we have to forget about this old way of organizing just skilled workers, just in individual crafts. We have to, you know, 5,000 workers at a factory you want to unionize, let's go out and unionize them. You know, let's not worry about, you know, dividing them into 37 different unions. Let's just do it and do it quickly. And there was this surge of, of unionization, especially by sit-down strikes with the famous Flint sit-down strike of 1936 and 37. In my book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, I write at length about how the Flint sit-down strike was the most important, most influential, most inspiring strike of the 20th century because workers won against what was the nation's largest company. And at the time, General Motors was a fiercely anti-union company. And once the Flint sit-down strikers or won their seven-week strike, you know, after striking in in, in you know, throughout the winter in, in, in bitter cold, once they were able to win a union against the iconic company, General Motors. And General Motors was, you know, the Amazon and Walmart put together of its day. You know, once they won at General Motors, that inspired workers at so many other places. And, and there was just a huge surge of unionization at, at factories and store retail stores across the nation. And and I keep thinking like the, the successes of Amazon, the successes at Starbucks, they could turn into a much broader surge of unionization I think the interest, the excitement is there, uh, but the nation's big unions aren't providing the resources, aren't providing the legal advice, aren't providing um, the lawyers that could really cause the you know, Starbucks, Amazon, Apple efforts to spread in, into other companies. And and you know, as as Hal Myers and I wrote in our American Prospect piece, you know. The percentage of workers in in the United States has, you know, kept declining for decades. It's down to just six percent in the private sector. So, you know, if the if the labor movement is going to try to really reverse its decline, really expand, it has to do it when it still is somewhat strong enough. And if it hmm. allows itself to decline hmm. to just you know four percent of the private sector work, workforce, it might then be way too late for ever for it to turn things around. So there is this huge excitement among young workers. You know, know, um, there was a poll showing that 77% of young workers 18 to 34 approve of unions. That's the highest rate in forever. There's another recent study that showed basically three out of four uh, workers age 18 to 24 say they would vote to join a union today if they could. And basically, you know, three out of four um, Hispanic workers say they would vote to join the union if they could. Four out of five African-American workers say they would vote to join the union today if they could. So there is a huge hunger, huge appetite to unionize nowadays. And I think uh, organizers, progressives, you know, um, Democrats, you know, people who want a fair economy, people who want to reduce income inequality, um, and the big unions really have to like dive in and say, this is our moment. Let's stop sitting on our hands. Let's try to maximize this moment to turn it into real movement. And yes, that means taking risks. That means unions might spend a million or $3 or $5 million on trying to build this moment. But it's ways now or never. And going back to John L. Lewis, he realized that the labor movement in the 1930s during the Great Depression was kind of stalled. And he realized that if the union movement continues to stall and decline, that means even his mighty union, the mine workers would end up losing power. So he realized that, you know, for my union, for the mine workers union to remain strong, we need all of labor to grow to, to grow stronger. And I think too many unions now, too many union leaders now think that, oh, my union's doing okay. I'm doing okay. I have a good job. And they don't want to, you know, Fight and spend the money and 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 you know and and you know battle fifteen hours a day, you know to build the labor movement because it's hard 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 work. But you know, but if you don't you know if you don't do it, you know if not now when if not now you, if not you who's going to do it? It's great that these young workers are doing it, but and 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 you know they're, they're somewhat self sustaining, but they need money to spread it, you know, to send organizers elsewhere, to have legal advice, to file. Petitions with the NLRB, and and I, I don't think nearly as nearly enough is being done by the overall labor movement to uh, accelerate this
0: effort. And the money is there to do it. Let's pull up this graphic, Adam, from Jacobin. There was a there was an article in Jacobin by uh, Chris Boner. Um, now is the time for unions to go on the offensive. There was a figure that illustrated that, quote, union membership declined by over 2 million members since 2000, nearly a 13 percent decline. Union density, uh, the percentage of total workers represented by unions, plummeted from 13.5 percent. Of the workforce in 2000 to 10.8 percent in 2020, but over the same period, the net assets of organized labor—the assets minus the debt—grew 153 percent from 11.5 billion to 29.1 billion. If labor is facing is facing an existential crisis, it's not reflected in the balance sheet, and that's just that was amazing to me when i saw that it, so they're sitting on a lot of money the leaders of the labor movement are a lot of these big unions are and obviously things are going to be different in different unions but why why is it that they are that that they're just sitting on it and that, i mean the fact that you know i mean why is there not a a a push to say like okay well we're going to spend everything that is above what we would have had adjusted for population in 2000 and adjusted for inflation, we're going to spend it on organizing. And that would be like, you know, something on the order of $10 billion. We're going to spend $10 billion in the next 10 years on organizing because uh-huh. that's, that's how much extra we have. Basically. Why are they not doing that?
5: I'll give you several, several reasons. So I read this book called beaten down worked up. I think a lot of labor leaders feel beaten down. You know, they tried to unionize And as I'm sure you've discussed uh, earlier today with Kim Kelly and others, it's very hard to unionize in the United States. The the, uh, playing field is really tilted in favor of management. And look at, you know, look at Bessemer, Alabama. I mean, yes, the union has, you know, came very close in the second time around and it still might pull out a victory once the challenge ballots are counted. But, you know, I, in my book, I, I, you know, I explain chapter and verse about why, And how it's so tilted in favor of management. So you take a unionization drive, you know, management can propagandize workers against the union 24 hours, seven days a week. It could force them to attend anti-union meetings. It you know, it can grab them, buttonhole them, grab them one on one, say you shouldn't vote for a union. It you know, it is Amazon. You know, I've written about labor now for you know, 27 years. Amazon's the first country, first company ever heard of. And this was in Bessemer that put uh, posters in the bathroom stalls, you know, telling people they should vote against the unions. You can't even sit on the can in peace. You got to read this anti-union propaganda. So, and, and in break rooms and, and in lunch rooms, companies show anti-union videos. I once did a big story about the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. On every worker's computer, the screensaver was you know was anti-union stuff. You know about how bad unions are. So on one hand, you know companies can just flood their workers with anti-union stuff. Whereas under American law, under, under a decision by our very pro-business Supreme Court, companies have the right to totally ban union organizers from setting foot on company property. They can't even, in the case where they said it was illegal for that, it was legal for companies to ban workers. Uh, an organizer went on company property to put some flyers on on cars, car windshields in the parking lot, and the company said, and and the, and, um, the Supreme Court said the company has the right to ban that. We got to put, we got to protect property rights. Forget about workers' associational rights, you know, employers' property rights, or some. So I think a lot of union leaders say it's you know. We've tried unionizing. We've lost too many times. It cost a lot of money. It's just too hard and too beaten down. I'm not going to try it. I think that's one thing. Second, I think a lot of union leaders worry that, hey, you know, in my union local, we're sitting on, say, a treasury of $5 million. And I could spend a million on that on an organizing drive to try to organize 5,000 workers, and maybe my chances of winning are 56% or 58% to 42%, whatever. And they'll think – you know, the odds on that are very, very good. And if I lose, my existing members are going to be pissed off at me. They're going to say, why? So I think, you know, a lot of union leaders feel just scared. And I think a third reason is like kind of inertia. And, and you, know, you know, all these very smart sociologists were writing in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when, before you were born, when I was just a little boy, you know, saying, you know, unions are great. But they're like all big institutions they are going to become increasingly bureaucratic and suffer from increased inertia. And, you know, if you're a union leader, you know, let's say you had a, you know, look what's happening now in the um, Writers Guild Union. You know, terrific union representing, you know, people who write TV and and movie scripts. They've done a great job using unionizing journalists, digital journalists, you know, at Fox and Vice. And I think some of the union leaders are like, worry, whoa, there are all these new people whom I don't know. They're in a different industry, and maybe they're going to vote me out, kick me out. Like, you know, it kind of – their lives can be – you know, a lot of union leaders feel, hey, my life is fine. I can go golfing at 5 o'clock or or 6 o'clock. I don't want to bust my hump, um, risk losing, risk having these young upstart workers we just organized. you know, try to run against me. So it's – I think there aren't enough incentives within the union movement to encourage, inspire, pressure union leaders to do more organizing, and, and, and I think there are really structural obstacles in in how unions are set up that make it hard. And it would be great if the AFL CIO, you know, the the, the, the um, larger federation, had some incentives or, or you know coughed up a lot of money or had this big organizing fund to get more unions to organize now so much of the organizing is like it's up to the individual local leader to do it. Like you know, hey, I'd rather you know go see my girlfriend at five o'clock or go golfing at five thirty or go out. You know, or very understandably go out to a movie with my kids tonight than you know be you know stand you know stand you know be knocking on doors in Bessemer at eight o'clock trying to persuade workers to organize.
1: Right, right. Jacob, I was going and, and, and and to
5: and let me just say and and if it was far easier to unionize, you know, if unions won 80 or 90% of the time, you know, if workers could just unionize through card check, we'd see a lot more unionizing because union leaders won't feel, won't feel the same inertia. They'd see how much easier it is.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a fantastic answer and kind of lays out the, the multifaceted issue there of why we're not seeing that response. And, you know, I think the, the, you're exactly right. I mean, the very nature of labor unions as institutions over time, the inertia that sets in, the conservatism that sets in in terms of behavior of leadership. Um, But I think that everything you just described, to me, reaffirms how important that militant rank and file movement is. Because if, if we can't sit back and wait on leadership to do it, well, that's where we have to push them inside of our unions and outside of our unions uh, to come up off those resources, um, because absolutely, I think I
5: think what's really great about the Starbucks effort is like its workers are like doing it themselves. They're getting off their you know you know behind and saying <laughs> I can I can do it myself and like and for their advice you know for to do it they're not relying on. Outside union staff organizers and, and bless their souls outside union staff organizers. They do good work, they do courageous work. But you know, so some baristas you know who unionize in Buffalo, some baristas who unionize in, in 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 Seattle might, you know, get on the phone or do a Zoom call with with workers in Arizona or Southern California or or Louisiana or Alabama or Florida and say, this is how we won in Buffalo or Seattle or Boston. These are the tricks, this is the BS you're going to hear from the anti-union consultants. This is how you respond to that. This is how you collect signatures. This is how you file with the NRB, and, and people see we could do it. And I think that's very, very inspiring. And, and it doesn't rely on you know, this union president to like give a green light. Having said that, you know the Starbucks unionization effort began in Buffalo in upstate New York. And it was a union leader, you know, the upstate New York head of Workers United, you know, blessed this effort, gave money for this effort, hired one or two professional organizers for the effort. And that's what really got the ball rolling. And, and you know, part of the brilliance of the effort is the lead organizer, Richard Benziger, kind of said, we're not going to do this relying on paid staff or organizers. We're going to try to really turn it into a self-organizing bottom-up effort. And it really... And, and and that's what it has been, and and you know you know people often say, can can uh, you know can workers unionize in in the south, uh, and I was in 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 um, Kentucky when uh, no sorry in, in Tennessee when the workers the Volkswagen workers voted against unionizing. Um, and, but, you know, in Starbucks, you know, in Birmingham, you know, Starbucks workers voted 27 to 1 to unionize, in Louisville 19 to 5 to unionize, in Knoxville uh, 13 to 4 to unionize, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, it shows that you can unionize in the South. You know, one of the things that most surprised me, you know, in, Alabama, in South Carolina, often considered the most anti-union state in the country, the workers, you know, in Anderson, South Carolina, voted 18 to 0 to unionize, so This kind of puts the lie to the idea that workers in the South can't unionize. It is, though, often harder in the South because unlike New York, for instance, or unlike Washington State, for instance, or unlike California, for instance, or unlike Michigan, for instance, in the the South and in Alabama and in Mississippi, you know, the politicians are going to fight very hard against unionization effort, whereas in New York and Staten Island, politicians very much supported the Amazon unionization drive. And um, you know, here in New York, you know, a lot of people have uncles, aunts, cousins, you know, who've been in unions, and they could talk about the great health benefits of unions or the great pensions in unions. But in states like North Carolina, South Carolina, we're just, you know, two, three, four percent of workers are in unions, many workers don't have any aunts, uncles, fathers, mothers, cousins in unions, and they don't know the benefits of unions. And and so yeah, that's why it was definitely more of an uphill battle to, you know, to win at Amazon in Bessemer than than and then in then in Staten Island. I keep thinking, I keep waiting. You know, there are very blue cities like Boston and, and Chicago and, and Minneapolis and Seattle and Los Angeles, uh, and I keep waiting to hear that. You know, workers at, at Amazon warehouses in those areas, you know, have petitioned for union election. But it's much harder to get you know, if you have a warehouse of six thousand workers, it's much harder to get thirty percent of them to sign cards saying we want a union than it is to get thirty percent of the thirty workers in the Starbucks right. to sign a petition. Right, uh, because
0: it, and. Oh, at a Starbucks location with thirty workers, you might have one or two kind of natural worker leaders. Where in a yeah, yeah. Uh, and and where you flip them, and you get the whole store. Right, but right, right. the at, you know at an Amazon warehouse, you're going to have hundreds of worker leaders in different shifts and different departments, and so it makes it a lot it makes it a lot more difficult. But how, so the let's say that we've you know um, oh and. You know, Speaking of, of blue cities, I mean, Birmingham, Bessemer, theoretically, is supposed to be a blue city. Jefferson County uh, is supposed to be run by Democrats, but the Democrats um, changed the lights for Amazon to make organizing more difficult. The mayor uh, came out and said, I support the workers who are in favor of unionizing and the ones who are not in favor of unionizing. It's their choice. So, so you know, theoretically, Birmingham is supposed to be supposed to be real... Real liberal, but uh, unfortunately that, you know, we we kind of shows the lie there.
1: (laughs) And obviously being in the South, Jacob and I are born and bred in the South. We've always been here. We know, you know, how hostile the environment is here to a particular extent. Um, But, you know, in listening to your comments and also thinking about the article back to the article, yes, as hostile as it is. Can we sit here and say that it's so much dramatically more hostile than it was in John Lewis's day? Right. Um, and, and so that's where I go back to, like, the conundrum of leadership is if you chose to, to run for office as the president of the union, we expect more from you. Um, and, and a mark of a leader is being willing to take on difficult tasks. Uh, and so I, I, I think you're, you're you've really hammered it home. There are militant, especially younger workers out here who are paving the way. They're showing we can do it even under these difficult circumstances, even with, you know, shoestring budgets. So leadership, take heed. Uh, if you want to be relevant in the, in the next decade, look, look around and see this energy and see the success. And, and not that we're asking you to take it over. We're just asking for some seed money. Uh, we're just asking for you know, let us borrow some lawyers uh, from time to time, um, and be willing and that, that, be willing to gamble uh, because you might just win.
5: And that, that's what we call for in that arc we wrote. That you know, there's more energy, more useful energy, more useful interest in unions than there has been in a, a very long time. But they need lawyers. They need money. You know, Chris Valls, who led the unionization drive. At amazon and starting out it's a brilliant organizer but there's just one chris smalls mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's great if he could go to you know the twin cities in boston seattle and 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 you know uh, the inland empire outside los angeles go to san francisco you know go to baltimore you know could go to blue places and say this is how you do it but like you know it would be he's great if he like, he's just one guy but like he has to like help teach other people to do it and, and people have to pay for them to go to all these other cities and, and, and it would be great if these unions or a lot of professional organizers could like lend some organizers to those efforts. But it's, you know, things are moving. You know, there's some of that going on, but to my mind, not nearly enough. And, and you, know, you know, one of the problems in the structure of the, of the labor movement is like, you know, if you're a union leader, you don't get many brownie points. You don't get a gold star for going and organizing, you know, 2,000 workers at that plant i mean yes it's nice you want to do that you want to expand your union but you know you know and you can feel good that your union has more bargaining power that it doesn't mean your salary is going to go up but so i think a lot of people just figure i'll settle with inertia but there isn't a structured way to pressure union leaders to do more organizing it's kind of they have to feel it in their gut they need the fire in the belly and a lot of young people have that fire the teachers went on strike in west virginia and oklahoma in Arizona, they had that fire in the belly, the Chicago Teachers Union. But we're not seeing enough of it among, you know, some some of the major union leaders in the country. And, and I worry that's going to hold things back. And I'm sure they will say, some of them will just say privately, it's just too damn hard, Steve. You know, you know, we could spend $10 million or $20 million or a billion dollars. And, you know, maybe we'll only organize 100,000 workers that way. But, you know if you don't try, if you don't take the risk, mm. then there's no way in the world that the union movement is going to turn around. And I think so many workers are frustrated with the huge income inequality, with you know not being able to afford housing without <clears throat> not being able to pay back their student loans, without having a voice at work to have a more reasonable schedule and be treated more respect by the bosses that are ensure that You know, customers, you know, treat them better. You know, I think, you know, a lot of workers are just frustrated and jazzed and they want to change and they see unions are the way to go.
0: One of the one thing that was mentioned that that unions ought ought to start doing, and I don't know if it was in your article or if I heard it some, somewhere else, but that they ought to have organizing funds or, or relief funds for workers who are retaliated against, who are fired, demoted, disciplined for organizing, and and pay their salary while, pay, you know, pay lost wages while they're waiting for the ULP to go through if it is a remotely valid ULP, because that would be, if you have this program with a, you know, with like, okay, you know, if you meet these conditions, we will pay your lost wages, give us your, you know, last six months of your pay stubs, and we'll match it uh, while we're going through the ULP, and that will allow those workers to, in effect, become paid organizers, And then after you get your ULP, assuming it's successful, you get the money back. And so that's a really good way to – you know, one of the issues with labor law is like, okay, you can say I've got the right to organize and they can't fire me. It's illegal. But they do. And when workers realize that they do, if if they've been told, oh, they can't do that, this is illegal, and then it happens to them and they see no relief from that, that can be really dispiriting to them and to their coworkers. But if they can say, look, I've got this concrete commitment from this union – that is really going to embolden them and that is actually something that is not very high risk because in a lot of cases you're going to get that money back and so right. you know in addition to stuff like that what are some of the other things that this that an, a, a renewed uh expenditures on organizing would look like and how would how can we structure it like Ben Singer did to ensure that there is a focus on rank and file workers, bottom up organizing—that it's not staff run and staff driven, because that can actually be detrimental too. If you've got too much of a focus on staff, you know, I've I've heard some organizers uh, tell me that I should join the union because it's like it's like fire insurance, right? And, you know, that's not a very good, <laughs> it's not a very good uh, not a very good organizing conversation. And so, how, you know, how do we ensure that that you know, what what would some of the programs look like, and how do we structure it in a way that it is I, beneficial? Uh,
5: so I think a lot of workers just do not know their rights. You know, they they don't know what a union does. They don't know that you know, if you support a union, it's illegal for the boss to fire you. You know, it's illegal for the boss to fire you for supporting a union. So I think you know, elementary step is unions, progressive organizations, you know, progressive politicians, community groups, uh, uh, African American groups, Hispanic groups, Asian American groups. Um, uh, you know, veterans groups, whatever, you know, they could like help educate workers. Like, these are your rights. And if you're unhappy with your pay, if you're unhappy with how you're treated, try to form a union and, and you are protected. And this is how to go about it. I think, you know, first step is education. Second, I, as we wrote, there should be the formation of like this nationwide lawyers group that provides emergency voluntary legal services to workers. You know, if you're fired because you support a union, that's illegal, and you're going to need a lawyer to help get your job back. You know, the National Labor Relations Board is being more aggressive than it's been perhaps ever before in going to court to try to get employees' jobs back as soon as possible when they're fired illegally. Uh, if you if you get 30% of your workers to sign cards to ask for a union election, you have to fill a lot of paperwork. It will be helpful to have a volunteer lawyer do that. If your employer says, well, you know, your petition for union election is wrong for reason X, Y, and Z. It'd be great to have a a, a lawyer help out on that. And um, also, you know, unions that have deep pockets could also help set up uh, social media networks uh, that will ease the way for workers to organize, to get in touch with each other, to zoom to zoom together. And and you know, you know, Zoom is this amazing, you know apparatus for unionizing, you know, it's like, it's great, you know, you know, 30 workers can just meet on zoom to discuss strategy or workers in, in upstate New York could talk with workers in Louisville to say, mm-hmm. this is how you go about unionizing. This is, these are the lies that the anti-union consultant is going to tell you. And, and this is why what they're saying is, is untrue. And this is how to respond to them. And this is what to tell your coworkers, uh, you know, to rebut, refute what the uh, anti-union consultants are, are doing. So I think, you know, you need more education about workers' rights, more lawyers, uh, more, um, you know, help on social media. And, and I think, the, you know, and, and like these people like Chris Smalls and some of the great Starbucks organizers, it, it would help, you know, to send them around the country to explain and inspire uh, workers elsewhere. And, and as, as you said, Jacob, and if you can have a fund that will, uh, you know, help you know, fired workers uh, make ends meet while they're appealing their illegal uh, dismissal, that would be great too. And and I think that's what Workers United, the Starbucks union, did. It set up it set a million dollar fund for uh, legal fees and and to help uh, subsidize workers who were fired illegally.
0: Stephen Greenhouse, I really appreciate your time this morning. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, before we let you go, is there anything else that, that uh, you think would be important to, uh, to mention?
5: Once a selfish advertisement for myself. So I wrote this book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, and, and I really wrote it to explain to Americans who know very little about labor, like what the union movement has accomplished to lift tens of millions of American workers, how it went about it. And then I wrote about why, because of the you know, conspiracy of corporations and many conservatives. There's been an all-out assault to weaken unions since the 1980s. And I explained how that has hurt workers in many, many ways. It's caused wage stagnation, increased inequality. We, the United States, though we're the richest world, richest country in the world, are the only wealthy country that doesn't have laws guaranteeing. Universal health coverage guaranteeing paid family sick days, paid sick days guaranteeing paid vacations for everyone guaranteed, you know, paid parental leave. You know, I was a reporter, economic reporter in, in Europe for five years. You know, every worker in France is guaranteed six weeks of paid vacation. In the United States, workers are guaranteed no paid vacation. Uh, in every other industrial country, you know, workers are guaranteed paid. Parental leave. You know, in in Britain, their workers are guaranteed, women are guaranteed 180 days, more than a half year of paid parental leave. In the United States, only 21% of workers have access to paid parental leave. I mean, we're the richest country in the world. Like this is crazy. And and in my book, I explain why, unfortunately, worker power has grown so weak in the United States. And in the last third of the book, I really explain how we can rebuild worker power through unions through politics um, and, and, you know, through, you know, other, other effort, other, other efforts, you know, through worker centers. And, and, you know, one last thing is, and I I just read this big article recently about how we all know all too well how precarious our democracy has grown with Donald, with Donald Trump and, and many Trump supporters willing to, you know, throw the rules of democracy out the window to keep their man, Donald Trump in power, even if he didn't win a majority of the votes. And then I explained how labor unions can play a really quintessential role in preserving our democracy because they can help the small D democracy forces and, you know, win. And, and, you know, they can help people in, you know, you know, help win in Georgia and in Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania where there are still, you know, where there's still contested races to preserve our democracy. And I think that's another big reason why people should support unions, because they play such an important role in in preserving and promoting uh, democracy.
1: Absolutely. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. And I am looking uh, forward to picking up the book.
0: And I did check; it is available at Powell's. You can go to the union that represents uh, the union that represents Powell's workers, ILWU Local Five dot com slash support, and you can click on the Powell's book link there. And seven point five percent of your purchase will go towards their strike fund.
5: And, and and the Powell's the Powell's folks said my book was under the. 50 most important books over the past 50 years. So, like, that was great oh, for yeah. my eco. And, and that was awesome. Great. Yeah, that's great.
0: <laughs> Steven, I really appreciate your time. Thank okay. you so much. Great to be here. Well, keep up the good work. Appreciate All right. it. Okay. All, All right. right, folks, that's going to be it for us today on the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye, y'all.